It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. And welcome to Moment of Truth. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That is 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa. I'm your host, David Moses. This is Moment of Truth, as I mentioned. And by the way, uh, if you uh, know someone that is living outside of our listening area, that being Toronto or the Ottawa area, and you think they might like to listen to our programming, uh, maybe catch an interview or two, uh, you can always tell them to download the Radio Player Canada app and uh, listen 24 hours a day, seven days a week, anywhere in the country uh, on any device of your choice. Just uh, type in 106.5 ELMNTFM or 95.7 ELMNTFM. And uh, likewise, you can do the same. Uh, then you can uh, uh, take it with you wherever you go. I'd like to welcome my first guest to the show. She is Suze Morrison. She's an MPP for the New Democratic Party of Ontario and for Toronto Centre. Suze, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Now, um, you, uh, you have, uh, you've been pretty busy, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> <laughs> it's, been a, it's been quite the year since the last time I've been here, yeah. <laughs> and, and now we're into the new year. Yeah. And, uh, but you were, you were pretty busy in the fall. Uh, in November, you were, you were busy introducing some things, and, and uh, congratulations on that. Thank you very much. Where do we start? Yeah, uh, well, it's been a busy year. Uh, I think probably the top highlights for me uh, are the new critic portfolios that we okay. created this mm-hmm. year. Uh, which I'm so grateful to have. Uh, so for the first time ever, we have an official opposition critic in Ontario for both urban Indigenous issues as well as uh, the response to the uh, missing and murdered Indigenous mm-hmm. women and girls inquiry. And uh, you, that's uh, something that you're very close to in terms of uh, sitting on these these uh, panels and things, correct? Yeah, yeah. Um, right before I was elected, I was actually working in the Friendship Centre movement. Uh, and uh, I think it's really important that uh, urban Indigenous voices are being brought into uh, provincial uh, policy and into the legislature. Uh, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's really exciting that we have, um, you know, such a diverse caucus and that, you know, we're able to bring different types of Indigenous voices uh, forward in the legislature for the first time. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Now, but you have a long list of things that you're involved with, you know, <laughs> housing, and yeah. outside, as well as women's issues as well yeah. on top of that, right? So, um uh, you're you're a standing member of committee on the uh, public accounts you've also are a member of the uh, justice policy and as you pen- mentioned the urban indigenous issues missing and murdered indigenous women yeah. um and the uh the critic for tenant rights now yeah. that is something that you've been very active on as well the tenant yeah, rights yeah it's issue. a massive file yeah. uh and uh so we've introduced a couple of bills this year uh, in the fall, I tabled a bill uh, called the Rent Control Act. Yes. And what it will do is uh, it will effectively undo the rent control loopholes that Ford created this year. Uh, so what Ford did was he came along and said, uh, we're going to create two classes of tenants in Ontario. Uh, those that have the, the regular rent control protections that Ontarians are used to, which means that your landlord can't legally raise your rent Uh, more than the annual guideline amount, which fluctuates, but it's usually about 2% per year. They cannot cannot raise your rent above that, Uh, except now, uh, according to this Doug Ford loophole in the rent control, if the building you live in was built after the fall of 2018. Mm. So if you live in a brand new building, either rental or maybe it's a condo that you're renting in, uh, you now don't have those rent control protections. You're a second class of tenant, uh, and your landlord can raise your rent by however much they want um, uh, once a year. 
Mm. So when uh, in the fall we saw the first tenants uh, experience uh, what that uh, vulnerability looked like. Mm. And we saw landlords uh, at a number of buildings across the city that were built right uh, when that new regulation came into effect. And uh, they were trying to raise their their rents by 25 percent. Uh, so we, you know, we took a really strong stand against that. Uh, we pushed back really hard against the landlord, uh, you know, working with tenant organizers and community groups uh, and uh, were able to, uh, you know, help kind of shame the landlord mm. uh, into reducing some of those rent increases. Uh, but, uh, you know, Ford and the conservative government seem to have no interest in uh, protecting tenants. Uh, you know, Ontario families can't afford I don't know who in Ontario can afford a 25% rent increase. It's outrageous. Mm. Mm. Uh, so the bill uh, rolls back that loophole so that every building in Ontario, regardless of what year it's bu- it's built in, uh, mm. will be protected by rent control. Now, let me ask you when you say that, you know, do they ever try to come forward with justifiable, you know, reason for these increases of that amount? Yeah, I mean, you know, the Conservatives have their talking points. Uh, and, you know, at the end of the day, uh, you know, they're trying to argue that uh, it's going to increase supply in Ontario. And we just know it's simply not true. I, I uh, guess what I was referring to is the landlords yeah. themselves, you know, coming back and saying, you know, cost, blah, blah, blah. But but I'm trying to, to think of what would justify something like that. So it, it, It's hard to justify. Um, it's, uh, you know, families and, and everyday Ontarians, uh, you know, deserve... Ha- safe, affordable housing. Uh, you know, we approach housing from a from a rights-based perspective. Mm. And, uh, you know, I don't know who in Ontario can can afford those kind of rent increases. Uh, and tenants deserve to be protected. And Doug Ford is just making things worse. Mm. Yeah. Okay. So um, it, it's great that that's being, that's being implemented. Now, uh, something else that uh, was right around the end of, of last year as well is y- y- you're a uh, your call for the entire government to condemn the Islamophobia bill. Mm, yeah. Talk about that at all? Yeah. Uh, you know, certainly as New Democrats, we all uh, uh, joined together and put forward um, an opposition day motion uh, calling on the conservatives uh, to join with us uh, in condemning Bill 21. Uh, you know, a lot of us represent uh, communities with. Uh, you know, really um, large populations uh, of uh, Muslim folks and uh, newcomers and, uh, you know, Toronto Centre is an incredibly diverse riding uh, and no one should uh, be made to feel unsafe or unwelcome in their community uh, because of their religion Mm. or because of uh, how they express their religion, whether that's, you know, head coverings or Uh, you know, wearing crosses or kippas. Uh, mm. <laughs> it's uh, and uh, as Ontario New Democrats, we wanted to send a strong message to communities that we were going to stand up uh, for their religious freedoms. Mm. Uh, now, coming back to the uh, the indigenous side of things, mm-hmm. um, how much time are you are you able to to dedicate or to look into these kind of things? As if, you know, with all that, with the busy schedule that you have, yeah. Uh, it's it's definitely a lot of work, uh, but uh, you know we try to divide the time, uh, you know, pretty evenly between uh, not just what's going on at Queens Park, but uh, you know, making sure that we're uh, really involved and connected to community. Uh, so you know, on top of the policy work and and um, you know how we focus on the different files, uh, it's also really important for me to be in the community, actually talking and listening to people, uh, because as a local representative, if you're not out talking to your constituents, going to community events. Uh, you know, really keeping a pulse on what's 
important to to the folks in the community. Um, you know, we can't do our jobs effectively at Queens Park uh, if we don't have that community level input. Uh, so I spent a lot of time knocking on doors in the neighborhood. Uh, you know, collecting petition signatures, meeting with community groups to better understand issues, uh, and all of that feeds into the into the portfolio work because mm. uh, it's that connection to community and that connection. Uh, to people and and the struggles that they're facing every day, uh, that's what really matters. And we can't make good policy at the end of the day uh, if those community voices aren't reflected in that work. Yeah. Uh, Sue, for, for uh, people uh, uh, maybe not be aware, but can you describe what Toronto Centre is? Yeah. What, what does that encompass for it's people? such a great riding. Uh, but it's also the uh, smallest geographic riding mm. in the country and the most mm. densely populated. Wow. Yeah, so it's uh, it goes from about Bloor Street in the north, uh, comes down the Don Valley Parkway, uh, across the Esplanade, uh, so just south of Front Street, not quite to the waterfront. Yeah. Uh, so across the Esplanade and then mostly up Bay Street, uh, okay, there's a couple yeah. little jogs in mm. and out here and there, but for the most part up Bay Street, um, up Young for a little. Um, and it's so about seven square kilometers, uh, well over 100,000 folks, um, and incredibly diverse communities. I mean, we've got Regent Park, St. Jamestown, Cabbage Town, mm-hmm. parts of yeah. the St. Lawrence Market area, the Garden District, the Bay Young Corridor, Corridor the Church and Wellesley Village, uh, you know, Moss Park. It's an incredibly yeah. uh, dense and diverse right. uh, set of communities. Yeah. yeah. Now you mentioned St. James. Yeah. Um, it, what can you tell us about that? I know you were you were working on some stuff there as well. Yeah. So St. Jamestown has had a rough time lately. Uh, so I'm not sure if you're aware, but uh, maybe for listeners that are in Ottawa and not as tuned into the Toronto area, we had a substantial fire at six at a building uh, at 650 Parliament Street uh, in the St. Jamestown neighborhood. Uh, it's a about a 30 story high rise building. About 1,500 people live there. Mostly very low income folks. A lot of newcomers to Canada. A lot of racialized folks. Um, a lot of kids, <laughs> uh, and uh, 1,500 people were displaced from that building after that massive fire. Uh, we we're very, very lucky that no one died. Um, and uh, a year and a half later, and those folks are still not home. Mm-hmm. So it's been a really rough go. I mean, imagine a community of 1,500 people being completely displaced for a year and a half, mm-hmm. right? I mean, that's a small village um, of, of people. And uh, so it's it's been a really tough time in the neighborhood. Uh, you know, some folks are staying with friends and family. Some have uh, been placed in other uh, apartments that the same property management company owns. Uh, some have given up and just have moved on and signed new leases in other places. Um, but, you know, in response to that, uh, I tabled a bill called the St. Jamestown Act. And what we're trying to get at is um, trying to increase and address the safety issues of high rise of aging high rise apartment buildings. Mm. So what we're seeing across Ontario is this, you know, aging stock of high rise apartment buildings and the critical infrastructure in those buildings um, are coming to the natural end of their lifespan in a lot of cases. So, you know, the electrical systems, the water, the elevators, uh, you know, these things that are critical to the, you know, the functioning of these buildings and Mm -hmm. can make them quite unsafe. Uh, And coupled with that, we also have um, some not great landlords out there uh, who are not necessarily uh, setting aside the money that they need uh, to be maintaining these large, um, uh, you know, capital infrastructure pieces in these buildings. Uh, And there's no requirement for these landlords uh, to prepare uh, for 
uh, the financial burden that upkeep to these large systems is going to cost. So when you live in a condo, for example, your condo is required to maintain a reserve fund. So that if um, you know large systems fail in the building, there's immediately access to the capital uh, needed to keep the building in a good state of repair. High-rise apartment buildings don't have that same requirement. And when we're talking about these high-rise vertical communities, uh, you can put a lot of people uh, at very, very serious uh, safety risk if these buildings are not properly maintained. So what the St. Jamestown Act does is it requires that landlords of high-rise apartment buildings uh, maintain reserve funds. Uh, for the uh, upkeep of critical systems in the building, and then protects tenants so that the landlords can't apply for um, what are called above-guideline rent increases for any repairs that they do out of that fund. So they can't just shuffle that cost down onto the tenants to, to try and protect them a little bit better. Because at the end of the day, it's the responsibility of landlords to keep their buildings uh, in a good state of repair. St. Jamestown never should have happened. Yeah, that that is very surprising to, yeah. for me to hear because let's say... Uh, a building, like you say, it reached it reaches the end of its life mm-hmm. with all of these things. People can't live there. Then there's this derelict, empty building. That's what. <laughs> yeah, and, and and from my perspective, I mean, it's it it comes down to safety more than anything. Yeah. Uh, you know, and sure. uh, even in buildings, uh, we've seen buildings in the St. Jamestown neighborhood that. Um, have had uh, power and water and heat outages for, you know, four or five, six days at a time uh, when major um, incidences have happened. Uh, back uh, last winter, we saw a number of buildings go through some serious floods. Um, we had major electrical work that after investigations um, into 650 in the surrounding mm. buildings, mm. Uh, they identified some major electrical repairs that had to happen in some of the buildings. And you know, for, for folks that don't live in, you know, vertical communities, uh, it's hard to sometimes, I think, imagine uh, what it's like to be without power in a 30-story building for four or five days at a time. You know, we were hearing stories of, uh, you know, one young mom who was six months pregnant having to walk up and down yeah, 22 flights sure. of stairs every day. You know, how do you provide a hot meal for your kids mm-hmm. uh, when you've got no ability to cook, you've got mm-hmm. no lights on? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, even if you're going to get takeout, you're walking that takeout up, you know, 25 flights of stairs. It's cold by the time you're getting there. Uh, you know, trying to get toddlers down 30 flights of stairs in the morning to get them to school. It's, um, you know, there's unique challenges um, in a high-rise environment. Uh, and when these buildings aren't properly maintained, it really affects the quality of life and safety for the folks that live there. Now, you mentioned a year and a half later and they're still not able to, to mm-hmm. come back in. What's the, what's the status of things at this point in time? Uh, we've had, oh, dozens of timelines for, mm-hmm. for estimate uh, estimated uh, return home for these folks. Uh, and every single time it gets extended. Mm-hmm. Um, this has happened about a dozen times. The last I heard, they were supposed to be back before the holidays and that still mm-hmm. hasn't happened. Um, I think, uh, you know, and we're now a year and a half later. Now, again, is this because of the age of the building and what they're finding as they're going through this? You, you know, I, I can well imagine uh, electrical, especially with, with the, if it's old copper wiring or something like that, yeah. that, that it has issues. Uh, I, I'm not too sure. I mean, I'm not, yeah. you know, inside yeah, yeah. the building. I don't sure. have, the <laughs> uh, you know, the daily status updates of, of how the repair work is going. Uh, but uh, from what I understand um, from folks I've talked to, uh, at the city and the fire department, um, you know, there were folks in the fire department that had never seen mm. um, a fire cause this level of damage. Mm. Uh, it started in um, uh, in one of the main electrical rooms mm. and the uh, the power surge arced up mm. through uh, wow. through the electrical on multiple floors um, mm. and it broke out into several fires on multiple floors. Wow. Uh, but it, uh, you know, the damage to the electrical systems was um, quite substantial mm. uh, from what I've been told. 
Yeah. Now, you've mentioned the uh, the the uh, conservative government a couple of times, and I'm just wondering, from your perspective, um, I- after the last election, it seems that uh, that perhaps Mr. Ford is 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 trying to put a new face on things. He seems to be changing his his tune a little bit. Have you have you seen that? Um. I think that they're trying to be perceived (laughs) as turning over a new leaf. I think those of us that work closely in the legislature uh, know it doesn't quite hold up. Uh, I mean, at the end of the day, uh, you know, uh, you can put a new shine uh, on the same old uh, tricks. But, uh, you know, we have a conservative government that is, uh, you know, bullying education workers and... Um, putting our children's future at risk by cutting uh, education. Uh, we have a conservative government who's uh, slashed, um, uh, has cost us, uh, you know, hundreds of million dollars canceling uh, green energy contracts, mm. um, who, uh, you know, are cutting health care, education. Uh, you know, no matter, uh, you know, which area of government, uh, you know, you look at, uh, they don't seem to have uh, the priorities of, uh, Ontarians, mm-hmm. uh, front and center. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, it's uh, it's really unfortunate, and um, you know they might be trying to uh, <laughs> rebrand themselves uh, in a new light, but uh, you know they're still uh, up to the same old tricks as far as we're concerned. Mm-hmm. Uh, just want to let everyone know that you're listening to Element FM. This is Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. My guest is Suze Morrison. She is an MPP for the New Democratic Party of Ontario for Toronto Centre. And she's uh, got a long history as an advocate for women's rights and reconciliation and community safety. And uh, she's like originally from London, Ontario. Is that no uh, Toronto? Okay, um, but lived in London for a few years. Mm-hmm. We moved out so my husband could do his PhD at Western. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, then she joined forces with uh, women to co-found an, or- an organization called Women and Politics. Yeah. And uh, she's been active in the fight against uh, gun violence in, in her neighborhood, uh, Regent Park. Um, gun violence is a big issue in the city. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Uh, you know, we especially feel it in Regent. Uh, we had uh, just the first week of January here. We had uh, the first homicide of the year in Toronto by gun violence. Uh, and uh, it's been really upsetting in the community. Uh, you know, a lot of folks, myself included, have witnessed the gun violence directly. Uh, you know, and there's, I think, a great sense of, um, you know, longing for, you know, the kids in the neighborhood to, uh, for us to know that they're growing up in uh, a community that they feel safe and secure in. Uh, and, and that's what everyone wants. (laughs) Uh, so it's, uh, it's been really tough. Uh, and I think, you know, we're working through as a, as a community, you know, after these incidences happen, we always work through a bit of a process around grieving and reclaiming physical spaces in the community that often feel unsafe. Mm. Uh, and, uh, you know, as we try to fight for a safer community. Uh, and it's tough because, you know, we know that the solutions lie upstream in poverty. Uh, and, you know, we've got a, a conservative government that uh, has... Uh, simultaneously, you know, cut uh, ODSP and OW rates. Uh, they're cutting uh, access to education. They're, uh, you know, they pulled uh, a grant that uh, was uh, used in 
Uh, Regent Park for a summer, a youth summer jobs program. We're losing after school programs. Uh, we've lost the community use of schools grant, which allowed community groups uh, to use uh, school spaces for for programming. That's had an effect on the community. Uh, you know, if we're not addressing the upstream root causes of poverty, uh, you know, we're never going to, uh, you know, fully eradicate gun violence from our communities. Uh, how do you think we get government to approach these things? And, and, and this is a wide open question. And the reason I say this and I'm asking this is because it seems to me that we we had some examples years ago before even you know, it was an issue here in, in the city. The city's going to grow. We know what happens as cities get larger. But we just have to look south of the border to see what's happened there. Uh, why do you think we don't learn from errors that have been made and, and try to implement things to so that it, it doesn't happen or mitigate those things before they can happen? Yeah, I mean, that's a tough question to answer. Uh, you know, I think... Uh, you know, it comes down to priorities. Mm. And I don't think we've had a government in Ontario for a very long time that has truly prioritized eradicating poverty. Mm. Uh, You know, the the poverty crisis that we're in didn't happen overnight. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, 15 years of and 20 years, really, of successive liberal and conservative governments uh, putting, uh, you know, the wealthiest and richest among us first, uh, and and letting the the poverty and and homeless and and gun violence crisis get, become what it is today. We're dealing with uh, you know a generational legacy of poverty here, uh, and it you know it started when uh, ODSP and OW rates were slashed by the Harris government. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's uh, a lack of uh, investment in things like pharmacare and dental care for communities. It's not putting public education first. It's uh, you know, the conservative government scrapping the basic income pilot before we even had the ability to collect enough data mm. to understand if that was an effective model or not. Uh, you know, not only are we not, you know, making the investments, uh, but the conservative governments are are ripping the rug out from underneath, uh, you know, any any research into new models we haven't tried yet. Mm. Uh, you know, it's really disappointing and it's going to continue to set our, our communities back. We need an aggressive uh, approach to eliminate uh, poverty in our communities. Okay, um, I'd like to ask you about uh, this co-founding of the organization Women and Politics. Yes. So let's talk about that a little bit. Why did you think it was necessary to to, to uh, you know get this organization off the ground? Yeah, yeah. So it was probably one of the most uh, amazing projects I've ever been able to be a part of. Um, and it started uh, at uh, an event in London uh, that uh, would happen at uh, like a regular meetup and it was called Pints in Politics. Mm. Uh, and, uh, you know, a social meetup of politically interested folks in the community. And uh, one month, the topic for discussion for the night was where are all the women? Mm. And looking at why do we continue to see uh, across Canada, no matter what level of government you look at, the average cons- uh, continues to stay flatlined at about 30% of elected positions being held by women. Um, sorry, 25%. 30% is the, the UN minimum mm. benchmark average, and we're not quite hitting that in Canada. Mm. Um, so we had a conversation around what as a community in London uh, could we do uh, to try and encourage and promote more women to get involved in politics at all levels. Uh, and so out of that, uh, a group of women got together and uh, we put our thinking hats on and we formed this organization uh, together called Women in Politics. 
And uh, what we would do is we would hold campaign schools. Um, we would have, uh, you know, socials uh, and, uh, you know, nights for, for women to come together and talk about the issues and get involved uh, in the issues that they were concerned about. Uh, we would even have nights where uh, we would physically take groups of women to city council to watch debate. Mm. Uh, because I, I think a lot of people um, don't uh, necessarily realize how accessible uh, their levels of government are to participate in. Uh, you know, you can go to City Hall and watch the debates. You can right. go to Queen's Park and watch the debates. Uh, and I think that there's a bit of a barrier for folks sometimes because they're they're nervous to even enter physically into those spaces. Uh, you know, it's, it's um, you know, going past security and am I really allowed in the building? And once I'm in the building, where do I go? What if I get lost? Uh, and just kind of breaking down those those barriers. And so we would just physically uh, have, we would meet up outside of City Hall and walk women through the building and, and uh, say, you know, this is City Hall. This is where we sit and watch the chambers, um, the proceedings in the chamber. Uh, so those were the kind of events that we were doing. And the, the campaign schools especially were particularly successful. Uh, and uh, yeah, yeah the, so the organization uh, continues on. They're doing some fantastic work. Uh, they have a very strong media presence as well. So they do a lot of um, you know, commentary in the community uh, around uh, different uh, gender-based issues. And I know they're continuing to advocate for things like the inclusion of a gender-based um, analysis as part of you know, budget planning and, uh, and uh, different strategic plans at the, the, at the city level. Uh, so they do fantastic work, and it was just such a, a great... Uh, project to to have been part of, and, and I'm so and proud so of the work is it, there. Is it uh, uh, regional? Is it uh, like a provincial? Uh, is it what's it, the? It's it's a small organization that's yeah. pretty local to London. Okay. Uh, at the municipal level, right? Uh, and uh, like I said, they're still continuing to do really fantastic yeah. work, encouraging more women to run, encouraging right. more women to just get involved uh, yeah. with you know political issues. Uh, and uh, sounds like a nurturing yeah. uh, thing as well to to try to get those women in there to get them familiar with with the political yeah. process and yeah. uh, maybe get them uh, thinking about how they might oh, want to yeah. participate Absolutely. at a future date, right? You know, and I don't think, uh, I sometimes don't think I would have necessarily considered running myself, mm. you know, if it hadn't have been uh, for everything that I learned, uh, you know, through that group mm. uh, and all of the, the support and encouragement that I got from those women. Yeah. Well, there you go. That's a, that's a great way to uh, to end that that topic of conversation. Um, listen, we're, we only have a little bit of time left. I'm just wondering, uh, what what do you see in the future? Looking forward, what are you excited about? What am I excited about? Um, oh, that's a good question. I'm really excited to see what we can do with these two new Indigenous portfolios. Uh, you know, it's they're brand new. Mm. And, uh, you know, like I said earlier, we've never had a critic uh, at a provincial level in Ontario for urban Indigenous issues or for missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. Uh, and I'm so grateful to my caucus and to Andrew Horvath for creating these positions. I think it it sends a strong signal to community uh, that, you know, as new Democrats, um, you know, we recognize the intricacies and the diversity of Indigenous communities in Ontario. Uh, and that, uh, you know, at the end of the day, 85% of Indigenous people are living in urban centres. Uh, and we need to make sure that, you know, there's programs and services um, that are uh, appropriate and properly resourced and culturally relevant uh, for folks uh, when they're away from community or when they're living in places like Toronto and Ottawa and Sudbury and London and Hamilton. Uh, you know, that support infrastructure in the, in the communities is so important. Right. Um, so it's, uh, they're brand new portfolios. Like I said, we've never had them before. Uh, so we're still figuring out 
you know, what that looks like. Uh, but we've had really uh, exciting conversations already with, you know, folks in community and with organizations, um, uh, you know, who are thrilled uh, to have this new perspective uh, at the legislature uh, and a new way to, you know, really signal to the government that we're going to hold you accountable on these files. Uh, we're not going to let you uh, let Indigenous folks fall through the cracks uh, in terms of policy and decision making and government planning. Uh, you know, it's time to put these uh put our communities front and center. Great. Now, I'd like you to, if you don't mind, explain something a little bit. And this yeah. is because you, you do have this long list of <laughs> <laughs> things that you're involved with. And and they all have critic were in the front of them, yeah. right? So uh, you're the critic for urban indigenous issues, like you said. Critic, missing and murdered indigenous women and girls response. Yeah. Critic, housing. Critic, women's issues. Uh, member of the Standing Committee on Public Accounts. Uh, critic for, well, we've already mentioned those ones. So... Can you explain to me, and this goes back yeah. to your women in politics, yeah, and and I guess for other people as well. When we see the word critic there, yeah, uh, what does that mean for for you as someone in in the party, yeah. uh, and what does that mean your role is as as such? Yeah, that's a good question, and I think uh, we sometimes forget that maybe folks don't know what critics are. Uh, so uh, within uh, the legislature, uh, there are uh, MPPs that are on the government benches. Uh, and there are MPPs that are on the opposition benches. So the government benches um, are assigned to ministerial portfolios. Um, so they have, um, you know, ministers of, you know, education, healthcare, uh, uh, community and social services. Uh, and then they have parliamentary assistants, uh, also MPPs, attached to those files to support those ministers. And the opposition benches, we're not uh, cabinet ministers. Uh, but what we do is our leader assigns us to... Uh, to shadow the government uh, cabinet on different files. Uh, and sometimes those files line up kind of exactly to the ministry, um, and sometimes they don't because, uh, you know, as opposition, our priorities are a little bit different. Uh, so, for example, uh, you know, uh, we have a, a critic for education uh, who shadows uh, the, the minister for education. But we also have portfolios that aren't, uh, you know, ministerial titles per se. Uh, so, for example, uh, you know, I have the the responsibility for uh, urban indigenous issues. Mm -hmm. Is there an urban indigenous ministry? No. Uh, <laughs> uh, so it means that uh, you know, it's but it's effectively still my job to hold the government accountable on those issues. So we uh, we follow what the government is doing. Uh, we we follow government announcements. Um, we we respond to the issues. We uh, we look for opportunities to raise issues in question period if we think the government isn't doing a good job uh, on those issues. Uh, and we work a lot with communities and stakeholders um, so that we're staying, uh, you know, abreast of all of the the policy and the research. Uh, you know, keeping good relationships with communities. Uh, and, uh, but at the end of the day, it's about, it's about accountability, mm. uh, and making sure that we're holding the government accountable in those files. Uh, so within the op official opposition, we all have different portfolios. Uh, and yeah, I've got a handful of quite large ones. <laughs> <You> <laughs> certainly do. Thank you for, for explaining <laughs> that. I hope that helps with people that, uh, may not have, uh, you know, quite understand what that yeah. role is with all of those things. Uh, Sue, so it's been a pleasure to have you here today and speak with you and, uh, and wish you all the best in the future as you as you move forward with that long list. Yeah, thank you so you much. <laughs> yeah, so uh, that's my guest, uh, Sue Mor Suze Morrison. She is uh, the MPP for the New Democratic Party of Ontario for Toronto Centre, as you may have heard her describe earlier. 
And uh, she's got a long list of uh, history as an advocate for women's rights and re- reconciliation, women uh, co-founding the organization of Women and Politics. And she's been active in the fight against uh, gun violence in her neighborhood of Regent Park. And it's been a pleasure to have her in here uh, in the part, first part of the new uh, decade of 2020 and speaking with you. And we look forward to having you back again. Thank you, Miigwech. Jimmy Gwetch. And uh, don't go away. We're going to be right back here on Moment of Truth with uh, more. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses, and you're listening to Element FM in Ottawa and Toronto. I'd like to welcome my next guest to the show. She is on the line, and it is Tenille K. Campbell. She is a Dene and Métis author and photographer from the English River First Nation in Saskatchewan. But she is calling in from places uh, actually to the south, uh, down in the uh, Texas area today, and it's a pleasure to have her on the show. Tanya, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so you uh, you got some attention brought your way because uh, from what we understand, you, you were having some, tr- some tr- car trouble, first of all. You had some car trouble. The <laughs> car had to go in for major uh, work, and uh, you were in school at the same time, and you needed to make your tuition payments. And uh, you came up with a, a kind of a creative way to address the idea to see if you could possibly get your tuition paid uh, by offering your services as, uh, as, as someone that writes poetry and poems and uh, an author to, uh, to offer those services to people online. And I, I, hear, I gather you were quite surprised with the result you got. <laughs> yeah. My car had broken down and I had to choose between, you know, paying off my car in a prairie Saskatchewan city that I drive around in every day or tuition. And I was like, we're going to pay the car. But tuition came around and I was looking at my house and thinking, what can I do? Like, how can I make this work? And I kind of just caught my books, um, my book called Indian Love Poems and a poetry book. And I'm like, you know, like, let's try this. Like, let's fundraise in a new way. Let's give something back to the community that both supported me and let them help me because it's always so humbling to ask for help. Mm. So, yeah, so I just threw it out on Facebook and I was actually pretty nervous about it. I was laughing about it and I like put the phone down and like walk away for four hours. (laughs) And when I came back, my phone had like blown up and my DMs were full and tuition was paid. I was really surprised. That's a, that's that's wonderful. Now, what, were most of the people that came uh, in, in in answering to that were they people that were familiar with with your your poetry and with your your po- your poem book of poetry? Yeah, I found uh, the majority were people who were longtime fans and were very eager to help because they knew me, um, not personally, but like digitally. Sure. And there were a couple, yeah, there was a couple of new people who actually bought poems for their friends who were indigenous. Mm. And, yeah, and I was like, it was just a great gift. And a lot of them wanted to keep it anonymous when they did give a gift, which I thought was even actually better. Mm-hmm. So I have a couple of questions yeah. from that experience for you. So for first sure. of all, um, I understand that that because what you did was you went a little further than just offering to to, to, uh, to uh, for your services. Um, you said you have a call with them, so you wanted to get to, to know them a little better uh, personally, so because you were going to write them a personal poem to someone or 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 some kind of a, a personal nature poem, and 
So you wanted to get to know what it was for, who it was for, get to know a little bit more about that. But but from doing that and making these these <laughs> phone calls that you had with people, uh, you you, they, you got to know them perhaps a little better than you wanted to, and and they became quite personal, uh, and, and it it kind of blossomed into into something else. Yeah, the process was just going to be me giving them a five-minute phone call, getting the basics, like name, who it's about, why you want it to be about them. But when you're talking with somebody and asking them really personal questions like that, like, why do you want me to write a love poem for someone that you love? What makes you love them? Like, in hindsight, that is such a personal question. Mm. And I'm very thankful that my clients and my guests were very open to discussing their vulnerabilities with me. That's an honor. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the end of it, you know, like native humor is native humor and kinship is kinship. And across the country, we were like laughing. They were telling me dirty stories. They were telling me secrets. And we we're like on the phone, like when I'm in town, we're going to tea together. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. That's great. Now, now, so, so, when did you when did you first become uh, involved with writing and an author? When did your when did your book came out in what two thousand eighteen? I think. Um, it was in April of twenty seventeen. Okay. Um, but I've been writing all my life. I grew up with my parents constantly telling me stories, as opposed to putting on the TV, which is great. So I kind of grew up in this lifestyle of always telling a story and writing was just a natural extension of that. And the poetry came about when I started my PhD. I was actually avoiding my PhD and starting to write more poetry. So everyone at the university is like very proud of me for doing this, but they're also like, you know, finish your PhD now. You wrote a book. It's cool. Come back. <laughs> mm. Yeah, and um, and that uh, that poetry, that book of poetry, Indian love poems. Um, uh, people can uh, can you, they can get a hold of you online, of course, and they can re- research that. They can find you uh, at hashtag Indian love poems, um, and uh, and that's an award winning uh, collection of poetry. You 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 got some good results from that. Yeah, um, who knew that people were all interested in indigenous erotica? (laughs) (laughs) No, I put it out, and like I love Saskatchewan, but it is a prairie small town mentality. And I put it out, and I was blushing half the time writing this stuff, but I thought it was important. There was good stories to share, and it connected, and people were open to it. Mm -hmm. And when it actually won a couple of awards. You know, my friends and I are sitting there giggling at each other like, oh, oh damn, what we do. <laughs> <laughs> but for the most part, it's been super supportive because I think positive Indigenous sexuality is something we need to talk about and has been talked about. Now that we have social media on our side, you know, it's been able to go coast to coast. Yeah, absolutely. I think you're, you're absolutely right on with that for sure. Um, just to, to give people a little more of a sense about the book, uh, what's written about it here is that it focuses on indigenous erotica using humor and storytelling to reclaim and explore ideas, ideas of indigenous sexuality. And, um, you know, it's really, it's really nice because you incorporate some of those, some of those things. And what I really like from a, a couple of poems that I wrote and uh, read was, was that y- you talk about the support of other women in your life as well. And I really like that. 
Yeah, I think we don't give enough acknowledgement to the sisters and aunties, the matriarchs of Staten Island. Mm-hmm. Um, I wouldn't be on this path, even in specifically Indigenous Radica. There wasn't people like Tracy Bear and Kim Talbear um, who stood in front of me and made this path possible, talking openly about sexuality on multiple levels. Mm. And acknowledging that presence in our lives is very important. We, we don't stand alone. We're, we're never alone. And that idea that we're a community, even if they're not physically beside us, I really like that, especially since I come from like an isolated northern community. Mm. This idea that I'm tied to something bigger, it mm. grounds me. Mm-hmm. And, and of course, that is uh, something that uh, I think any Indigenous woman across the country would identify with, that, that support and that relationship with other women. And, uh, and, and, you know, let's extend that to possibly non-Indigenous women as well. Oh, for sure. I think that women, you know, we push against this idea that we're supposed to be in competition with each other and when actuality, we're in community with each other. Mm. You know, as a writer, as a photographer, as an artist, I don't look at my fellow photographers or artists and say they're my competition. I say, what can I learn from them? Because they're my community. Mm-hmm. And so, listen, what has changed for you since you decided to throw this out on social media as a way of, of creating a, a, a money to pay your, your tuition. Uh, did you close that down after you reached your goal, or did you, have you continued it on? Or what is, how is that, how's that to, uh, rolled out? Well, I reached my goal, and I paid it off, and I wrote most of the poems. Mm-hmm. And I still have a few left to do, but like four friends were very understanding. They're mm-hmm. like, you're awesome, it's fine, chill. <laughs> But for now, I've definitely kind of shut it down until maybe the next project or the next fundraiser. I don't feel comfortable just doing it, just like, hey, I want a new camera. Like, mm. no. Oh, sure. <laughs> like, I need, yeah, I need something to fundraise for that I can't necessarily just get for myself in right. a good way. It probably yeah. worked. It probably it probably worked for you in that regard because it was just something that came to you sort of mm-hmm. a, on the spur of the moment to think of how you needed to resolve this this uh, this issue you were in and in this tight spot at the moment, rather than like you just said, oh, I want to raise money for an, you know a new camera or something. That's probably why it had that success as well. Yeah, I think people understand and acknowledge the struggle it is for a single mom who's in grad school, who's paying her own way to pay these bills that come up. And especially when, like, as an artist, as a grad student, you live paycheck to paycheck, things like car repairs can, you know, rock your world and make you doubt everything. Like, Mm -hmm. it's silly, but it's true. Mm -hmm. So I think they connected to that idea. And when you're you're focused on things like that, you you certainly are not able to focus on your uh, the things that you want to focus on, like your school or other things, because you're so consumed with how am I going to get this bill paid? Yeah, you could mess things up for yeah, you. Yeah, exactly, exactly. You know, I'm sitting there, I'm supposed to be reading my indigenous lit work, and I'm like, mm, but this bill is due. Mm-hmm. And why am I studying if I can't pay tuition? Because right. if I can't pay tuition, they're going to kick me out. Right. Like, it's just a constant. Yeah. 
And, and so, so the other question I wanted to ask you about that was, has this given you, uh, or how has this changed that going through this process? Has it given you ideas of how to approach things in a different way moving forward on a, on a general level of, of your, your art in, in terms of poetry or photography using social media in other ways, perhaps? Well, I've always loved social media. I've always had really positive experiences online. Mm. I think like attracts like, so the people that come to my page are very open to new ideas and discussions. And I honestly think that this idea of poetry sponsorship or patrons is like an old idea, obviously, but something that could be explored in a new modern way, like with maybe a chat book at the end of the year. If you did it every couple of years, like that's a pretty, every couple of months, that's a pretty consistent collection of poetry. Mm. And it'd be this idea of kinship poetry, this back and forth, this intimate, like this is my story, but this is not my story. This is me telling someone's story. I don't know. There's like ideas to explore there that I'm really interested in. Right. Uh, I'm just wondering. Do you have a uh, Do you have uh, a piece of of poetry that that you might be able to uh, share with us that is is uh, something that is is okay for the general public? <laughs> <laughs> You're like disclaimer. <laughs> oh my goodness! Yeah, for sure. Um, this one, this one, this one is nice. Um, this woman wanted me to, and I have permission to share these ones. Okay. But this woman wanted me to write about growing up in a family of women and how they help each other out. Gave me very specific Mm. stories that I really enjoyed. And I think this is sweet. I was born to a matriarch of women, born to sisters, hands held out, ready to catch me when I fell. They tell me stories around a table full of tea, Laughter running deep, their joy echoing mine. As our babies tumble and fall, our hands ready to catch them. Hmm. Yeah, really nice. I, I really, you know, when, when, when I hear your poetry and when I see some of the, the other ones that, uh, uh, we, that were shared with us uh, for this purpose, um, I, I really mm-hmm. like how you, you tap into that indigenous element. I, I really get a sense of of that, uh, the culture and the, the bonding, you know, that, that, um, that is there. It's, it's really nice to see. Yeah. Like I do like want to note that anything that as a Dene woman that I write is indigenous, whether it include those physical markers or not. Mm. But I think there's something very comforting with seeing a very matter of fact, straight reference to us from us. Because at the end of the day, these are love poems from one Indigenous person to another. Mm. Like, this is a love poem from me to you, from my cousin to her niece. Mm. And I think people identify with that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, um, are you, do you do much, uh, do you do much in the way of uh, lectures or, or go make uh, poetry speeches? Or do you do any, any kind of road work like that in terms of uh, your poetry? Yeah, for sure. Um, Indian Love Poems has really opened up this world. Like I said, there's not enough of us talking about it. <laughs> so I've been all over the country. Um, 
my photography is definitely tied into that poetry work. So I'm in Austin giving a photography talk at a conference called Friends of Fearless. And we're talking about like cultural appropriation and photography and how to be a good ally because mm. it's a mainly white crowd. Mm-hmm. And then I'm hopping over to Phoenix and having a reading event with three other Indigenous artists. And yeah, just really enjoying this life as an artist and sharing story. That, that's great. Congratulations to you for all that success. And, and, and what's going on with school? Have you finished school now? No, don't ever ask a PhD student <laughs> oh. that. <laughs> okay. Like, no. No, I still got a couple more years for mm. sure. Uh, what, are you focus- <laughs> what are you focusing on? I'm just sitting here, like, in shame now. Like, I'm not finished. <laughs> no, thank you. <laughs> um. My thesis is focused on Indigenous women's erotica, big shocker, <laughs> in Canadian literature. And I'm connecting it to this idea of kinship and reclamation of matriarchal roles. Mm. Basically how, yeah, like how when women talk about sex, we create relationships that reflect the relationships that happened before colonization. Mm. Right. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's great, and uh, congratulations uh, not only on uh, your book of Indian love poems, which people can find at uh, numerous locations, right? There, there's, that book's available at, uh, it's available at Amazon, it's available at Chapters, I believe. For sure, and I highly encourage people to go like to their local bookstores and support local, because they can order them and just mention hashtag Indian love poems, and they'll find it. Hmm. Great. Anything else uh, uh, coming up for you that you want to mention? You're going to be around the Ontario area at all, doing anything uh, in in regard to your your poetry or photography? Well, we're discussing going up there in March uh, mm-hmm. for a conference, but hasn't been confirmed yet. Okay. And I'm there every like four to five months now. It's it's grown on me, Tana. <laughs> well, when you're around, you'll have to make sure to uh, to uh, stay in touch with us because we'd love to have you into the studio and, and chat more. Awesome. I'd love that. That's great. Uh, well, listen, it's been a pleasure speaking with you, and uh, we really appreciate you taking the time to, uh, to call in uh, from uh, south of the border as you're in uh, Texas right now and, uh, and speak with us. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. Our pleasure. Uh, we look forward to, as I say, uh, having you in here once you're into uh, the Toronto or Ottawa area. And that is Tanel K. Campbell. She is a Dene Métis author and photographer uh, from the English River First Nation in Saskatchewan. And we've been talking about uh, her uh, poem, book of poem, poetry called uh, The Indian Love Poems. Hashtag Indian Love Poems. If you're interested, you can find that at Signature Editions, Amazon and Indigo. And uh, also, she was telling us about how she needed to raise money uh, for tuition and came up with the idea of using her poetry as a way to write personal poems for people for a fee and, um, and uh, to get her, her, uh, her tuition paid, which worked out very well for her. Um, and she was able to get that paid as well as, I guess, pay for her automobile, which was going into the shop as well. And uh, that went, uh, went very well for her online. So it's been a pleasure speaking with her. So, Tanil uh, Chimigwech uh, for joining us today. Merci, Okay.
talk later. Uh, don't forget uh, to listen in every day uh, for Moment of Truth right here on Element FM. And welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. And uh, joining me on the line, I have Bonnie Beach. She is a member of the Canadian Animal Rescue Craft Group. Bonnie, welcome to Moment of Truth. Thank you so much. And thank you again for the invitation to come and speak today. Well, it's our pleasure to have you, but unfortunately, you know, I wish we, we were talking about something that had uh, a little more of, a, 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 of a, a positive message, but there is a positive message in it uh, coming out of this, this horrible situation in Australia with the Australian fires and, and all the unfortunate animals that are being affected by this. Absolutely. And I think, you know, you've, you've captured it exactly correctly. I think that in, um, in a very, very horrific and tragic way, uh, the world was called to help these animals that, um, you know, have been affected by the fires, uh, whether it's due to their habitat burning down. Uh, often it's the parents uh, who have perished and they leave the young behind. Uh, and, and I cannot stress enough the, uh, the incredible respect that we have for every one of the individuals on the ground in Australia. The coordination at that end must be unbelievable. But I must say that as Canadians, um, the the way in which we have uh, pulled together and are creating these items that are needed for the animals is something I've never seen in my life. It's just incredible. Now, in case people don't know what we're talking about, Bonnie, I just wanted to let people know that that what you are doing with the craft group and and, uh, many people right across the country that are involved with this uh, is you are crafting uh, different kinds of of pouches and and gloves and and things for animals that are in need Uh, uh, because of what you just said. uh, They're being orphaned, they're being uh, uh, injured, they're burned. And this is to help some of those those animals uh, in Australia. Exactly. So right across the, the country, uh, and then obviously in the most hardest hit, uh, animals are affected in many ways, whether it's just, um, you know, uh, simply the, the trauma of going through those, those forest fires uh, and being displaced and now suddenly interacting with humans mm-hmm. in a way that they had never done before, to animals that have, as you say, injuries. Um, and we have a very high level of orphaned animals particularly baby joeys, uh, kangaroos, uh, wallabies, bats, um, hares. uh, I mean, think about all of the animals that are native to Australia. Um, The latest count uh, on, on an estimate, to be honest with you, is about a half a billion animals have been affected by these fires. So what we're doing is we are knitting, crocheting, and sewing uh, items such as, as you mentioned, uh, pouches to put baby joeys in uh, that would kind of mimic their mom's pouch, right? So I think about a kangaroo and the and the pouch sits in there, and they're in there for several months until they're ready to uh, to walk and, and hop. So what we're doing is we're creating these items and they're being shipped over to Australia to various hubs that that, um, have been coordinated by the Australians on the ground. And uh, these items are then sent to the hardest-hit areas and areas that need these items the most. And and what's happening is we are getting on a daily basis an update on what the needs are because what they're finding is, um, you know, 
they're encountering new animals or animals that were, you know, previously, you know, in the, in the last couple of weeks able to fit into a small pouch uh, that we have sewn or knit. Uh, they're now actually moving to a larger pouch. Now, the Australian group has said to us that at the moment they're taking a stockpile of all of the shipments that they have received from around the globe. And I, I'm so proud uh, of the fact that the Australian uh, coordinators have signaled that Germany and Canada have actually responded the most and the fastest and with um, the, a, a large variety of items uh, compared to any other country in the world. That is uh, nice to hear, of course, uh, in such an unfortunate incident. And, you know, I, I can't... The, the other thing, of course, we're talking about the animals but of of course there there there's multiple fronts that that this uh this, this horrible horrible tragedy is is taking a uh, toll on the the yes. not only the wildlife but uh the the fire themselves that 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 people are battling trying to get somewhat under control uh the insects the 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 trees uh you know the the environment itself is is just being ravaged by this Absolutely, and I mean, think about the firefighters, uh, you know, traveling in from all across the world, mm. um, uh, medical professionals, veterinarians, uh, and even, you know, from a human capacity perspective, the help that's going to be required, not just for physical injuries, but the trauma and the the impact on, on the in, uh, Australian culture, the indigenous people there, right. the people who live off of the land, uh, their whole life, are, their, their whole lives are going to change. And, uh, you know, the, the, the thing that we can do as crafters is try and help with the animals uh, and, and the call out to anybody who, you know, perhaps has a skill set that could be offered uh, to Australian people and, and the environment to do whatever you can. Uh, and if people think, you know, I'm just one person, well, I'm one person sitting in Ottawa, you know, helping to organize the Ottawa uh, response, and there's there's probably about five of us that are helping in Ottawa, uh, and the number of people that are crafting, think about them as individual people. The impact that each one of those those individuals are having is tremendous. And this will be continuing long after uh, the fires have subsided. Uh, that need will be continuing. So, Bonnie, I just want to say thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing this with us and speaking to us today. Thank you again. Thank you for the invitation. And uh, and as a Canadian, I just want to say thank you for uh, supporting all of us as well. Even getting this message out is tremendously helpful. Well, let's make sure to try and catch up at a later date to see how things are going, because as you mentioned, this will continue on. I would appreciate that. Thanks again. You're very welcome. That is Bonnie Beach. She's a member of the Canadian Animal Rescue Craft Guild. And she was speaking to us from Ottawa. That's your show for today. I'm your host, David Moses. You are listening to Element FM, and this has been Moment of Truth. Until next time, I say, Onigiha. I also want to say Nyawa Miigwech Wanishi and thank you to everyone who helps put Moment of Truth together. They include in Ottawa, Jill Kennedy and Caroline O'Neill. In Toronto, Andrew Johnson, Luca Capone, Kathy Zaboken, Andrew St. Germain. Nyawa Miigwech and thanks for listening.